Welcome to the seminar series of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative at Duke Divinity School. TMC seminars are a semi-monthly gathering of faculty, clinicians, students, trainees, and others interested in the intersection of theology, medicine, and culture. The seminars are presented and supported in collaboration with the Trent Center for Bioethics, Humanities, and History of Medicine. Prince, welcome. Welcome to this uh, Theology, Medicine, and Culture seminar. I'm Clark Curl, and I'm one of the co-directors of TNC, as we call it, and we're delighted you're here. Um, I was just tell telling our guest today, Dr. Randy Clark, that we, in the Div School, are uh, an academic institution, but we aspire to be, uh, both, to both serve and be attentive to the church and how the Holy Spirit is working in the church uh, outside the university. Um, which is where the church is mostly. Um, and we're really delighted and privileged to have with us uh, today Dr. Uh, Randy Clark, who is the overseer of Global Awakening and the Apostolic Network of Global Awakening. He is, Dr. Clark is a major figure in charismatic Christian healing movements and is best known for his leadership in what has come to be called the Toronto Blessing. In the years since, he has been invited to speak about revival, healing, and impartation to Christian groups all around the world and from many different denominations. He's been featured in major Christian media outlets, has taken several thousand people with him on international ministry teams, and has authored or contributed to more than 40 books, as well as multiple curriculum sets regarding healing. And I should say there that... Uh, Dr. Clark has several uh, of his books here uh, today, so don't fail to um, look at those after he speaks. Um, Dr. Clark received his MDiv from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and his DMIN and Dr. Divinity as well from United Theological Seminary. He has taught at United Theological Seminary and Global Awakening Theological Seminary in conjunction with Family of Faith College and currently serves as adjunct faculty at both United Theological Seminary and Global Awakening Theological Seminary, and um, has just spent a whole lot of time uh, with people seeking uh, God's healing, and we're really delighted to, to learn from his experience and expertise. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Randy Clark. Thank you for the invitation, and quite an honor. I just need to make sure if I remember correctly, it's like 45 minutes to talk and then 30 minutes for the uh, discussion. That's right. We, we will be here till 1.15, so <coughs> okay. sometime discussion will be awesome. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for coming. Um, 14 days ago, I uh, cried a whole lot that day. I was speaking at the Sin, the stadium had 80,000 people in it. I had, it was a culmination of 21 years of investing. This is my 116th trip to Brazil. Most of the times were two to three weeks at a time. Um, one third of the speakers that spoke that day had been touched in one of our meetings. Many of them had been touched. They were like 39 years old, 38, 40 and they'd been touched as teenagers at our Youth Power Invasion Conference that we would do each year training Americans that we would bring down and other uh, youth from around the world and then we'd be gathered and meet with about twice as many Brazilian youth. 
while I was speaking there, that um, it was streamed to another stadium that had 55,000 and another stadium in Brasilia. These were both in Sao Paulo that had 30,000. They told them that it was the fastest that they'd ever sold out the stadium. YouTube had, you, YouTube had sold out in six minutes and 30 seconds or something like that, and Coldplay had sold out in less than seven minutes. But this group sold out the stadium in five minutes and 50 seconds, and then sold the other one out. Is that God is doing something. It's an amazing thing that what we're seeing. In this November, I'll celebrate 50 years since I first announced my call to ministry. I, uh, when I graduated MDiv at Southern Baptist Seminary, it was, uh, right before they fired a lot of the professors because it was the most liberal seminary at the time in the Baptist denomination. And uh, I was there during that, that season. My college major was religious studies. My major, minor, and all my lectures were in religious studies because I wasn't going to go any farther. I'm the first person in my family, the first male in my family to go past the seventh grade. I thought my dad always had an eighth grade education. I spent a week with him, two weeks before he died. I said, son, I went through it twice, but I never graduated. So it was a, a lot of um, change in one generation. Thankfully, my brother and my sister, you know, they had all gone to college and graduated in their own fields. But at 25, when I got out of school, 14 years later, after I graduated, at uh, 32 years old, I, because uh, I had pastored in, all the way through college and seminary, um, I'm thinking, I have spent seven years of my life trying to learn how to be a minister, trying to be educated to be a pastor, and how to minister to the needs of people. But I had not one class that taught me how to heal the broken heart. I hadn't had one class that taught me how to pray for the sick. I hadn't had one class that taught me how to deal with the possibility that there could be a demonic affliction. I do not believe that demons cause mental illness I think it's naive to think that they are the primary cause. I also think it's just as naive to think they never can be a contributing cause. Though I would believe it to be quite exceptional rather than normal. But I realized I wasn't trained. And I began to seek outside of theological education. And I had the opportunity to have a team come in from the vineyard in it. Yorba Linda, where John Wimber was a pastor, and they came in, and I had a meeting where I didn't invite any Pentecostals, I didn't invite any Charismatics, I only invited Evangelicals, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Methodists, Baptists, uh, Church of Christ, Christian Church, but no Pentecostals, no Charismatics. I didn't want anything that could have been, this is a cultural thing you learn to do in one of those denominations. If anything happens, if we have any manifestations, if we have anything that's just weird, it won't be because somebody's modeling it for us. It'll be that we have never seen it. We, we are, this is virgin territory. Nobody had ever been to any type of meeting like that. And yet God came. And I, saw, I could put on one hand the number of healings I'd seen in the first 14 years of being a pastor. And seven years after I graduated seminary, 
I could put on one hand the numbers of people I've seen healed. We saw over 50 people get healed in four days, including my wife from TMJ, severe TMJ, from, for psychosomatic reasons with her dad just passing kind of a horrible death. Um, we saw all types of things. This is the first time I've ever filled the Holy Spirit. Uh, after that, I began to see healing. It was rare, but usually, you know, less than five and 14 years, it was felt really exciting to have even one a month. As time went on, we began to see more. As we had more experiences and learned more, and learned to see what's really in the scriptures more, we saw more. At the time of Toronto, when it happened, I was the, I was the pastor that went there when the Spirit of God fell. And it lasted 12 and a half years, six nights a week. Just three people that were touched in that meeting, because a lot of times you hear about it, all you hear about Toronto was animal sounds. I could put on one hand the number of times I was in a meeting where there were any animal sounds. And most of the times they weren't really thinking they were animals. Rarely that happened. Most of the times it was confused for people who just had a shriek. And someone said that was chihuahua. Or somebody would have what we call the crunchers, and somebody said, that's a chicken. Or somebody yelled when they're having, like my associate did at a Methodist school at Asbury. And I said, of all the places, you have never yelled. He was a mild-mannered guy. Why did you choose to yell here at Asbury? He said, uh, I said, roar, <coughs> line roaring. He said, I wasn't alive, and I wasn't roaring. I was in the middle of an open vision of being like a Marine attacking in the charge, in that guttural yell of a Marine as he's getting ready to charge the enemy. That's what was in my frame of view, in like a vision. I have, it had nothing to do with an animal. Sometimes things got, you know, miscued, misunderstood. But just through the life of Heidi Baker, who may be, you may not know who she is, but through her ministry and what God did to her and the seven-day experience she had of sweating and electricity going through her body to the point she thought she would die, which is not uncommon. Finney and Moody had those experiences. I started crying out at 18 to have an experience like that if it's really real. It happened to me at 37. It's the only one time in my life where the power of God is so strong, I, I was afraid that if these, as Finney said, these waves of liquid love and these waves of electricity would have continued to come over me wave after wave, I would have died. When I read about that in D.L. Moody, fam both famous evangelists in the 19th century, where he said in New York, when the Spirit of God came upon him, he went into the, in this person's house in the bedroom, and he lifted up his hand and said, Lord, stay your hand, lest you slay me. I can't stand anymore. And so I was called in the Jesus movement and so many millions of people around the world were saved and called out of the drug cultures, <coughs> the hippie movements. And I was called to preach in that in a real revival in the Baptist church. I went seven nights a week for six weeks. And that little church of 120 people, 11 of us, entered the ministry. 11, youngest was 16, the oldest was 23. Most of us, meeting was 18 years old. 
called in that atmosphere, I could never be satisfied for what, over the next years, the dryness that was in the church. And my own church was growing. We planted it, my wife and I, without any help, without any denominational help, without any money. I had I had said no to an offer to plant an American Baptist church in St. Louis when I was in Southern Illinois. With a $100,000 stipend over five years, 20000 a year, if I would go there and there was 40 people and a building. And I said no because I was afraid I'd fail. <coughs> but after I was touched in my own church, in the Baptist church, when the vineyard guys came in, it gave me such faith and such courage that what I would not do with a $100,000 stipend, with a building that's paid for, and 40 people. Instead, I took a job frying donuts and moved to St. Louis without any help and nobody and no building believing because of what had happened. We can do this. And it took me almost four years to reach 40 people. Four years later, we had about eight 400 constituents, we were growing. A lot of people were coming to the Lord. But the church was growing drier and drier in the sense of we weren't seeing as many people get healed. We weren't seeing as many people being filled with the Spirit. We weren't seeing some of the things that I'd seen four years earlier, or eight years earlier when we started the church. And it's like the Holy Spirit spoke to me one day and said, you don't like your church, do you? And I remember thinking, as, it's like an impression. I, I've never heard an audible voice. Now, my illiterate grandmother did twice in her life. But I have never heard an audible voice. I have a few friends, rare, that's actually heard an audible voice. Heidi being one of them. But I have. So when I say I heard God speak to me, I, I'm just talking about the strong impression that I interpreted was God. He said, you don't like your church, do you? No, I don't. What's wrong with it? Now, I knew enough of the scripture to know how to answer that question. Lord, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and the impression came back, it's too much you and not enough me. Now, we were growing. And I was killing myself, working 60 hours, six nights a week out doing meetings doing evangelism we were growing but it was growing out of the hard work church growth principles and things and, and I realized God if I wasn't paid to be this pastor if I hadn't and if you start a church you can't blame your predecessors for your problems <laughs> you don't have a predecessor to blame it's kind of like what you don't like, it's your fault. Because you have built the DNA, the genetic code of this, this belief, this body. You have let this happen. I ended up apologizing to the church sometime later, asking forgive me that I, would, that I took the easy way out rather than pressing into God, fasting and praying for a breakthrough. Which ultimately I did. Um, and I, I remember... The, my goal was I wanted to have a church of average tens of a thousand that would legitimize my ability of being a good pastor. That's what I wanted. And we were on our way there. But the, in that moment, this, 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 I knew it was the Lord. What's wrong? It's too much you and not enough me. 
And then next thing, the, the impression was, would you be happy if your average attendance was a thousand? He knows how to go after your idols. And I remember saying, thousand. And Lord, that's my goal. That's what I wanted to have. And I thought, but that's just more people. And people are problems. When you have people, they have problems. And when you have more people, you have more problems. That's just more work. And if you're having all this work, but where's the fun side of ministry? The fun side of ministry is when you realize in a certain moment you're no longer flying that airplane by yourself, that you're now the co-pilot. And someone much better than you just stepped into the life with you. And that's what's so exciting about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's not the gifts you wear as badges that makes you superior to other Christians who don't move in those gifts. It's the privilege of knowing that in that moment you are in the presence of God. The Orthodox faith has a totally different view about the gifts than the Western church does, which I like. When we experience the gift of the Spirit, that gift is the energy of God, and the energies of God is God Himself and His eminence. And so it's more than a gift. It actually is the experience of God Himself as we are experiencing that gift. He speaks to us. He empowers us. He leads us. He guides us. It's very relational. It's very personal. And so I'm thinking, God, that's my goal. Have a thousand. But if we're not seeing the sick get healed, if we're not seeing people being touched powerfully by the Holy Spirit, if we're not seeing mental illness healed, if we're not seeing relationships healed, if, we're, if it's just me working and my wife working and growing and all those principles of church growth, but absent of your presence, no, I wouldn't be happy. The next thing was, what if it's 5,000? Which was the biggest church in St. Louis time was 5,000 average tens, two, two of them. And I remember saying, no, Lord, I realize right now that it's not a large number of people that I want. What I really want is you and your presence to where I feel like ministry is just not going to school, getting education, learning how to parse sentences, learning how to... Nothing wrong with those things. But it unless His presence is with us that we really realize something happened today like it's beyond my control. It's not near as much fun. Several years ago I took a guy who had this one of the largest Presbyterian churches on the East Coast and the largest one in New Jersey. He's, he's a friend. We call him Dr. Doctor because he already had a doctor's degree from Fuller and I called him one time and said, I'm getting ready to start this group. I'd like for you to be in it. It's going to be another doctorate degree. And he said, if it will help you, I'll do it. So he went back to school with me and he was in our group and got his second doctorate. And uh, so he went to Brazil with us. And I remember on, after a couple of weeks in Brazil, we were coming home and we were eating some sushi as we were waiting on our flight. And he looked at me and said, I have been in the ministry, and I've forgotten now, it's like 16 or 20 years. He said... I did not know ministry could be this much fun. Mm. This is the most exciting fun I have had in ministry in my lifetime. And uh, we're still very good friends. He's the assistant dean of the school that I started, the seminary I started. And uh, this the difference between 
whether you're a doctor or a pastor, we're both involved and concerned about people's health. When I spoke at the, the, the stadium, when I was getting ready to go up the, to the, the, the back area where the speakers were at, I was met by a, a surgeon, a Brazilian surgeon. And he, he said, I just got to talk to you. I was in a meeting, one of your meetings, several years ago. And uh, I came forward for the time of impartation. And the power of the Holy Spirit touched me. I never had seen a healing in my medical practice as a surgeon, ever. But after that, I started seeing healings. I think of Dr. Philip Wu, who uh, has a part of a 40-doctor clinic south of Perth, Australia, Chinese guy. Uh, he came to a Singapore meeting I did and uh, for a church called Cornerstone. It's a very large church of thousands. And I had a dinner with him. And then after dinner, his wife and kids were there. He said, would you pray for me? I said, sure. And to be honest, I'm not expecting anything to happen because I'm not preached on impartation. I've told no stories about impartation. He's not read. There's more a book I have about impartation. And I actually am not expecting anything to happen. I'm going to pray for him. So we came around to the table and he closed his eyes. He held out his hand and I just said, come Holy Spirit. And he fell into the power of God right there. No audience, just behind the curtain. So does a little um, a dinner we were going to have. Uh, now, twice a year, I, at least twice a year, I get emails from him, and in the emails, he lists all the healings he's had in his practice. And it's really interesting because I, I, it's, it's sometimes difficult to merge your faith and practice. Not all the not uh, the AMA isn't always excited about that. You want to make sure that you're not, you know, doing it in a wrong way. And so I've been following, you know, him. And then when, when other doctors get touched powerfully, I try to connect them. And uh, he says, when I get ready, uh, what I've tried to do is to document this so I won't get in trouble with the AMA, you know, Australian Medical Association. And uh, so <clears throat> after we've tried everything else, I say, just like I was going to introduce a new drug, I say, well... There's one thing we haven't tried. As far as side effects, I'm not aware of any negative side effects at all. As far as its efficacy rate, based upon our experience here, it's this percentage of the people we pray for have received healing. Uh, it's called Christian prayer. We're laying on of hands. I'm just su said, suggesting it's something we haven't tried. If you're open to it, we want to, we'd be glad to pray for you. And if not, that's fine too. It's just... Something that we haven't tried. He said, I, I document it all. <laughs> that this, they you know, say, yes, I'd like to do it. And he's having amazing things of people who are being healed. It's just not pastors that we pray for who receive an activation in an anointing for healing they didn't have before. Sometimes it's doctors. Sometimes it's uh, presidents of hospitals. And sometimes it's chaplains. Our Christian healing certification program, which we developed so that we would have an equal standing with Reiki and therapeutic touch, the insurance companies would not be able to pay them to not pay certified people been through our training, was created so that we would have an approach to healing that takes in the best of medical understanding and spiritual understanding that is still resting upon a Judeo-Christian understanding of healing 
rather than a understanding of healing that would be more of an Eastern religion type that is the worldview that is under Reiki therapy touch. And so it's been exciting. We had a program that we started at uh, Christ Church in uh, Cincinnati. It's a, it's a university hospital, a Christ Hospital in uh, Cincinnati. The head chaplain said, we, we've been getting this much money if we do this program, but it doesn't work. And we're going to give up the money that we receive to do this program. And we want to implement your program. And after the first time, already, they said it changed the atmosphere of the floor that they introduced it to. And two other chaplains were coming, and now we're working with um, uh, University of Maryland, Baltimore, and getting ready to do a double-blind study, the first of its type, trying to, because we believe that there shouldn't be this um, battleground between medicine and religion, that, that, that we're for the same thing. The church shouldn't be afraid of trying to, to, to verify what we're finding out, and the medical profession shouldn't either. Uh, we're living in an exciting time, a time when there are, I think, great breakthroughs dealing with, with health and a holistic understanding of health that it really is body, mind, soul, spirit, interrelated, rather than you just can pick one and focus on it and not realize that sometimes where the issue is in another area of their life. We're in agreement on that. So, I want to share just a little bit of where I was coming from, a little bit of my experience on that, uh, and some of the things that we're doing. By the way, I wrote my doctoral dissertation, and it was only a D-min. had to be 120 pages. Uh, mine was 399, after they made me take out 50 pages. Um, and... Uh, William Abraham is the leading Wesleyan scholar at SMU. And he was there at, at the, where I was at, and they were, we were both speakers. And he said, I've, I've heard you've written a thesis. Do you have it with you? I said, I do. He said, can I see it? I said, sure. So he looked at it. I hadn't turned it in yet. And he looked at me and said, don't turn this in. This is not a demon. This is a PhD. If you'll not turn it in, I will accept it as it is for your PhD all you have to do for the next three years is come twice a year for a week and do these dialogues. I'm going to be the visiting professor at Notre Dame University for the next few years. And that's where you can come. You don't even have to go to Houston. I wished I would have done that. Uh, but I didn't. So what I wrote on was a study, and I just lost where I was at now. Uh, a study, there it is a study of the effects of Christian prayer on pain or mobility restrictions from surgeries involving metal. That's what it was about. I wanted to do something because on September the 9th, uh, 2009, I did a meeting for the first time I saw a breakthrough in people who have chronic pain or loss of range of motion because it's not something you have. There's no anomaly. There's no um, spontaneous remission the metal just doesn't go away, you know. The pain is there. And I had been, I'd been prayed for with this guy in England 
who had seen this in this ministry, Bill Johnson and I both, I was too afraid to pray for it. And Bill did, and he'd had some success. He told me, it gave me courage to go for it. So I said, just found out this is happening, and I went for it, and nobody got healed. And I said, it's really embarrassing, because I really had a lot of expectations. People who are suffering really bad pain, chronic pain, or loss of range of motion, uh, none of them got healed. And I said, God, it'll be, a, it'll be a cold day in hell before I do that again. And the next meeting was in Loveland, Colorado. And uh, I don't know, about a thousand people were there. And I, this guy came up to me. It's the only time it's happened. And I've been, like I said, almost 50 years in ministry. I'm getting ready to walk out to eat dinner. And this guy hands me a folded up piece of paper. And he says, I am in excruciating pain. Found out later he is on a morphine pump. He said, I'm in excruciating pain. I want you to look at this. And so I go outside, get, you know, and I'm getting ready to eat, and I open it up, and it's his neck. It's his x-ray of his neck. I count the bars, two this way and two this way, and 23 screws in the cervical area, in the vertebrae. 23. I'm thinking, no wonder he's in so much pain. He can barely move his neck. Anyway, long story short, that night I, I, I did go for healing of this condition. And I didn't understand what had happened. Later on when I'm writing the, the thesis, I realized what I misunderstood as something very important. And so I asked for the people who had had surgeries with metal to stand. And there were 47 that stood. We prayed a simple prayer. And this is one, to be honest, it's the easiest prayer I pray because I start out saying, because usually we pray, we're taught to speak to the condition. Well, I don't know what to speak to. I don't know what to say. It's not like I command the tumor to disappear. I command it to shrink. I command it to die. I command the bone to move. I, you know, I command the blood to change. I command the DNA to be rewritten. You know, <clears throat> what do you command in a situation like this? <clears throat> so I didn't know really how to pray. So my prayer was this: God, I don't know how you do this. I don't know what to say. But I thank you for what you're about to do even though my brain can't comprehend it. And, and I had done that the first time. Nobody got healed. None. Not one. <clears throat> a big crowd. A lot of people had it. This time, 23 people testified that according to their own awareness of pain, and there's no better gauge than the person themselves when it comes to pain. I learned a lot when I was at uh, six hernia, I've had nine herniated discs and had three different healings. Uh, by word of knowledge and by getting healed by dream when I was asleep somebody else had a dream about it so I understand pain I understand that when you go to the physical therapist they ask you from the scale so they can get insurance money zero is no pain ten is excruciating pain what's the level of your pain it's self-reporting pain because you can look at an x-ray and what should be a lot of pain may not have pain and what should be a little pain they may be have a lot of pain it's hard to tell of course, they have these things you test on what ranges of motion is they have. There's ways you can test it in physical therapy. And, uh, and so I asked the ones to test it out, see how much, if you can move at least 80% more than you could before, or your pain levels come down. We had 23 out of 47. I thought, wow, that's really good. But it was almost six months later when I realized I'd been asking the wrong question. Because... I was in Virginia, and one, night, one day I just asked my question differently. I said, 
How many of you have had surgery in your body and you've had metal put in it? And I counted the number and then I said, how many of you, you're, after the surgery, you had chronic pain or you had real loss of range of motion? Is 40, about 46, to, close to 50%. In the United States, it averages close to 50% of the people who have the surgery end up having chronic pain or loss of range of motion. So then I realized, wait a minute. And I found this to be true almost everywhere we went. In Brazil, it's higher than America. Um, and I realized 23% is almost 50% of 47 so 23 who reported healing would have been almost everyone who would have known if they were healed. Because if you have no pain, you can't know if you're healed. How would you know? You have no pain. If you don't have a loss of range of motion, there's no way to test it. You can't know if you were healed. And so it was really significant. That created more faith. I had no idea how God was doing it. I've seen over 5,000 healings of this one thing. In my, in my dissertation, I studied five continents. I forgot how many hunt, uh, scores of churches, 900 people who reported they had had the surgery, and about 450 some out of them who had complications from the surgery. And we had overall, in that one year of study, uh, around 38% of the people there were at least 80% better. I mean, Unless, unless you're basically working that field, you may not realize. Failed back surgery, FBS. If you have failed back surgery, you have another surgeon, get 10% better, that's, that's good. 20% better, it's great. We didn't count. This is 80% better. So we, I was looking for something. Can we, what can we prove? Because a lot of people don't believe in healing. They need evidence. My friends, Josh and Candy Brown, are the founders of Christian Medical Research Institute, which exists to verify Christian healing, a healing as a result of Christian prayer. And uh, one of the things we're working on now is, is a, a case of uh, ALS. A person's healed like six years ago in the same night, same word of knowledge, when a woman was in a wheelchair with MS and couldn't get up. And as a word of knowledge, uh, and he and she both were healed, he of ALS and she of MS, in the, on the same word of knowledge, on the same night. I didn't know it until Janu uh, January this year, but it happened six years ago. So, for six years. Now, several years ago, I was in 94, I was doing a meeting, I didn't learn about this until like four years ago. And it was like 20 some odd years later. This guy has diagnosed with MS, I mean ALS, and he came to me and he just felt like this heat, like hot water go through his body. And he was healed of ALS. Now, sometimes people say, well, it's just an anomaly. And what I learned as I was studying about placebo effects, learning about anomalies, learning about, you know, the, often the way if you are trained in a human argument that the supernatural is really impossible because it would destroy the nature of our universe if you couldn't depend upon the laws. And I don't, by the way, I don't believe God ever violates our law. Just like aerodynamics 
law supersedes the law of gravity. I think God uses a law we haven't discovered yet. To think that we, if all of our science have discovered everything there is to know about the reality of things is quite braggadocious and egotistical. I think a little more humility would be good. And we don't have to assume, well, that's breaking the law. Just God's using the law we don't know yet that supersedes that. I have a lot of questions. I have lots of questions. For example, I'd like to know, why is it 50% of the time or more when somebody gets healed, they feel heat go through their body? What's causing that heat? What's that a sign of? What, what is happening? And why does that happen? Or they feel uh, electricity going through their body. It, uh, it's at least 50%, at least, that that happens. What is that? Why is it sometimes when people are overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit that the electricity is so, and the heat is so strong that they sweat through their clothes? Like the pastor of the largest Baptist church in Brisbane. When the day he said before his church, I'm going to go for the Holy Spirit, and we prayed for him, he fell down in front of everybody. Several hours later, he sweated through his clothes. I've only seen it happen three times. What caused that? <coughs> what happened? Does it happen with Heidi? Happened with this guy? I know four people that we prayed for, each one of them in their ministry since then has led one million people each to the Lord. When a word I gave Heidi was, you'll see the blind see the deaf hear the lame walk and the dead will be raised. They had never seen the dead raised. Johnny was the first person to raise the dead. They had over 400 dead raisings in Mozambique. I've met people who were raised from the dead in Brazil. Uh, I have people in the United States tell me. My own cardiologist believes that he had a dead raising. In a hospital, after someone had been dead for, I forgot, 20 minutes, and as he's leaving, he has this impression, go back and shock him one more time. He believes it's God enough. He goes back in and persuades him. The guy's been dead. No oxygen. 20 minutes. He would be a vegetable. He's, he wrote a book about it. It's called Raising the Dead. I mean, he's a board-certified cardiologist who taught at the universities in heart transplants. And, you know, it's just not us preachers. It's also doctors that believe God can speak to you. He obeyed the voice and went and did it and he came back to life without any brain damage. So, okay. All right. I want to deal with something. I'm going to quit talking about this and I want to change the Jesus. I'm supposed to talk about Jesus. I saw it. I realized it yesterday on the plane coming out. Oh, I'm supposed to talk about this. So I'm going to try to talk about Jesus and healing. We believe Jesus is our model. We believe that he gave the church the great commission in Matthew 28, 19, 20. 18, 19, 20. All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. A lot of us like to put a period there. There's no period. And teaching them to observe, obey, do all things whatsoever I commanded you. This is discipleship. What it means to be a Christian we are to be taught by our leaders that what Jesus did, we're supposed to do. The Great Commission should be understood from the paradigm of the commissioning of the 12 and the 70. The 70 are not apostles. The 70 are followers of Jesus that were not apostles. Which means it's not just the apostles who were able to do miracles, to create doctrine, that's cessationist belief, 
wrong. It's not biblical. But it is. Liberalism, on the other hand, believes that Jesus didn't even do miracles. He didn't really multiply food. If you read Barclay and some of the other guys, well, they realize he's got a lot of compassion. So they bought a lot of food and they put it in a cave. And then when the next day came, they went to the cave and they got the food. Jesus really wasn't walking on the water. He knew where the sandbar was. You know, I mean, these are literally things I heard in seminary myself. I was, I was trained in liberalism until I realized in my last year of seminary when I read a book uh, that was basically dealing with called Historian and the Believer uh, by Van Harvey. And I realized that the presupposition upon which all the higher critical Methodists I'm not against hypercritical method. I'm against the presupposition that starts out based on the human argument that no miracles are possible. And so anything that's recorded in history that's supernatural and miraculous, you can't accept it. That's why they say certain books had to be written after 70 AD because the prophecy of Jesus was too accurate of the fall of Jerusalem. So because we don't believe it's possible to predict the future in prophecy, then we have to make it born uh, written after 70 AD. That's why we can't believe that the miracles. Older liberalism tried to explain the miracles away in naturalistic terms. A more violent form of liberalism just said it wasn't historical at all. It just didn't happen. It's myth or legend. There's a church writing back its doctrine into the history. When I realized that, I don't agree with that. And I realized that the whole higher critical Methodist force of historicity of what can really happen and what can't isn't based upon any principles, hermeneutical principles, interpreting scripture other than this. We do not believe the supernatural is possible. And if you disagree with that, it's like a whole thing falls apart. So if Jesus is supposed to be your model, and if we believe that he said that the high, at the top of the list of what we're supposed to do, if you go back and study the commands of Jesus, at the top of the list is heal the sick. Cast out demons. I mean, that is, and, and, and work with the poor. That's at the top. How can we take that which is the top and have discipleship that doesn't deal with it at all and call it discipleship? We have, we have done a Western thing, which is we, we, we equate knowledge of something as the as equivalent to the experience of the reality of the knowledge. And so we've made discipleship how much do you know rather than how much are you obeying. I think Jesus would rather have somebody who knows less but does more than someone that knows a lot but doesn't do much. Now, I want to talk about Jesus as an healing because it doesn't make any application to our lives if we don't think it applies to us. So when we look at Jesus, we have, a, we have a two theological approaches to understanding Jesus. The first one, based upon the Sixth Ecumenical Council, the Third Council of Constantinople, Constantinople in 680-681, was that Jesus had two natures and two wills. And out of his divine nature, he did his miracles. And everything else that was normal and natural, he did in his human nature and will. That is the official position of the Sixth Ecumenical Council. And that's why when in the 1830s, when Edward Irving was the Presbyterian, really well-liked Presbyterian, he began to have gifts of the Holy Spirit 
in his church, Presbyterian church, uh, he later was defrocked. And the nation taken away from him, and he died in shame and, and I think brokenhearted, I think, what really killed him. What did he, why did he defrock? They, they, it wasn't because of tongues or healing or the gifts, though that could have got him in trouble. They found that here was a, he taught a canonic view, Philippians 2, where Jesus emptied himself, who being in the form of God, thought of not Robert to be equal with God. He didn't grasp equality with God. It doesn't mean he didn't try to get equality. It means he already had equality, but he didn't hold on to it in the incarnation. He released it. And in that self-emptiness, canonic passage, is in the way of understanding Jesus that violated the understanding of this council, which said, Jesus, what he said in John 5, 11 and 5, 29 or 30, I can do nothing in myself. I can only do what's in my father that he was totally dependent in his humanity. And though he was totally God, I believe, very God of very God and very man of very man, without being a tertian quitter, a third form of being, that he really, in his incarnation, released and chose not to use his deity or his power to do his miracles and really was tempted and really was like us so that he became the captain of our faith or the model of our faith and this is what we call the canonic understanding of Jesus, which is what he did. He did by total dependence on the Father through the Spirit, choosing not to draw upon his deity to do these things. In that way, we can see how he really is so much our model, and we too are seeing him as the model. And we are asked to do what, this, if you believe in me, the things I've done, you too shall do, and even greater things than these shall you do because I'm going to the Father. Which means, and because I'm going to the Father, I'm going to pour out the Holy Spirit. And it's to your advantage that I go away because I can pour out the Holy Spirit and become the baptizer in the Spirit. And you have access to my power and my energies and my gifts. Be able to do what I've done and even greater things than these shall you do because I'm going to the Father. But if you say, well, that's not orthodox. That's, that's violating this, this counsel. That's, that's, not the, that's not the way I understand who Jesus is then I want to take the other side and look at Jesus from the council of two, two natures, two wills, and what he did in the supernatural, he did by the deity. If we understand what it means to be a Christian, it means we are regenerated. It means that we become anointed by the Spirit. Christian, Christ, the word for Christ is like being smeared or anointed. We are Christians. We are little Christ. We are regenerate. He's the firstborn of us. We are a new creation. The Holy Spirit is in us. So we have two natures. We have our normal fleshly nature and we have a new nature born of the Holy Spirit. We too have God in us who can also come upon us even as Jesus his supernatural of his deity God in us uh, this is a, Paul said in Colossians 1 27 and again in 29 he said this is the mystery which has been hidden which is this Christ in you the word Christ the anointing the presence of God in you the hope of glory now that's been understood by most evangelicals the hope of glory is that when the end of time comes we'll get a glorified body 
the hope of glory. And one of the problems in the Protestant church is we put all the supernatural stuff either into the millennium or into the history, but not in our present. But when you look at Paul, especially in Colossians 1.29, where he says, we struggle with all his energy that works so mightily within us. It's not our energy. It's his energy. But it works so mightily within us. There's a dependent relationship. It's not us. We can do nothing ourselves. Only what we see the Father doing. But when we begin to see and hear what the Father wants to do, as he does speak to us, impressions and things, it's, it's like so subtle sometimes. You think you're missing it. Recent. Okay. Last. Within the last two years, I felt like the Lord said, you have been so afraid you would miss me in words of knowledge that you wanted the words of knowledge to be so strong you wouldn't miss. Now what I mean by that is they, they were so strong, so they, they heard, you could feel, you couldn't miss. But he said, in your desire not to miss... You have missed so many words of knowledge that was really me, but you were afraid to give them. You want me to yell at you, and I want you to learn my whispers. And so I began to experiment, and I would tell them, I don't know if this is the Lord or not. Those I did, this I'm not sure. Uh, this is really subtle. So I was down in Albuquerque, New Mexico, a friend of mine's church. He's one of our professors in school. And... Uh, I got up and I said, after I'd given about 20 words of knowledge, I said, now these next five words of knowledge, I don't know if they're God or not. And I just told the Lord, I'm going to give it all the impressions that come to mind. Things I would never have given before. And so these may not be God. And that's the way to build faith, you say. You say, this may not be God. <laughs> uh, and, I, and, I, and I said, uh, 17 staples. And somebody stood up that had a surgery involved in 17 staples that had complications. And I was shocked. I was right. Albuquerque, New Mexico is in the middle of a desert. My next word was, I don't think this is God, but I'm going to give it anyway. A maritime accident. And they laughed. and said, are you aware you're in the middle of a desert? I said, I know, I told you. I didn't think it was God. And a guy stood up and said, I just went to the East Coast and got hurt on a boat. I have complications still. I said, oh my gosh, that was right. And then I had this thought, and I didn't, I, don't, I didn't know, you know, I had this thought, ah, artisan, arti artesia, artisan, am I trying to focus, or is it both words, or, or is it not even God at all? Is this, well, this is weird. And I said, yeah, I don't know, I don't even understand this, but I'm, I don't know if I'm getting artesia or artisan. And this guy says, I am an artisan, and I live in artesia. It's a small town near here. <laughs> You see, science is based upon the scientific model of being able to conduct experiments. Experiments and experiences, really, it is an experience that you've got to note on and think about and write about it. There's a need for us to experiment and yet be accountable to our others that we don't get off the deep end to learn how to hear better. And to be used to God more. Because I think He has more for us than what we've seen. It's so much more fun. 
And so I got to tell you about the last one. This was really a breakthrough for me. And I realized, I, God was right, I had missed so many words. And so now I'm not, I'm, I don't care if I'm wrong. I just say, hey, if it, if it doesn't happen, I'm wrong. Sometimes I feel like I have like what I call a gift of faith, or I really believe what I'm about to say is going to happen. And don't have to pray. I just got to tell them to do something, they'll be healed. But what I do when I do that, because the gift of faith means it's your gift, not, it has nothing to do with their faith. Mm-hmm. They could have no belief at all. It still happened because it's moving on the gift of faith in you, which is not your faith, it's a gift that God creates. So, uh, what I say is, if I really have a gift of faith, and I say it, if you don't get healed, I'm not blaming you. I was wrong. Because that's on me. Because you see, the gift of faith is in the person speaking it, not the person who's receiving it. And odd times... They could be healed and not even have any faith at all. So anyway, here's the last one. I'm certain, I saved it for last because it's the one I'm almost certain can't be God. You know what it was? How would you like to give this as a word of knowledge somebody getting healed in your meeting? Crowbar. That was the word. Crowbar. And I said, I have no clue how that could be a word of knowledge. I, I'm almost certain that's not God. So I said it. And the woman stood up and starts weeping. And this is her story. During worship tonight, I heard the Lord give me an impression. And he said, I'm going to heal your crowbar issue tonight. She was a victim of domestic violence. Her ex-husband had beat her with a crowbar, had broken her jaw, broken her neck, caused her to go totally deaf in one in that ear. And the Lord spoke to her and said, and it's not the healing that you really want. What you really want is the healing on the inside. But I'm going to give it to you anyway. And she just felt this heat come all over her. So how much faith do you think it created in her to hear somebody get up and say, I don't know what this means, but crowbar. It created. The word created and confirmed. That was really God that spoke to her. And she was healed. Got her hearing back. Got healed emotionally and physically. So now back to this thing I don't have a discussion. I don't try to end this right now, but in one minute. Whether you have a canonic view of Jesus or the traditional orthodox view of two wills and two natures, he still is our model because we have two natures being born of a spirit. So whether we say he became like us or we're becoming like him, in a sense, by the dependence on the Spirit, He is our model. And we, He does speak to us. And healing is one of the easiest ways to see people brought to Christ. 80% of all the people in Africa come to church first because they need a physical healing that either traditional medicine or, or modern medicine has not been able to deal with their issues. Healing is extremely important part of discipleship doesn't mean that everybody is going to have be known as the healer. No. First Corinthians 14 would say, are all healers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Are all evangelists? No. Are all apostles? No. But we can all share our faith. And we can all pray for the sick. And we may have occasional gift that occurs in our life. If that gift happens enough, you may end up finding yourself on your ministry team at the church 
because you like to do it because there's such an anointing on you. And that anointing increases to the point that you begin to go transnationally. Then, you know, it's more as in an office. But it starts with believing. Whether we're a doctor, a nurse, or a pastor, we're in the same field. Just approaching it a little differently. But the same Holy Spirit in me can be in you. And as I alluded, some of the stories, many of the stories I've told were stories of doctors and nurses that God is using very powerfully. Now, we do need healthy models of how to go about that. And not, you know, there are some models that wouldn't work in a hospital that, you know, but that's another issue for another time. Discussion. I know some folks have to leave. Uh, I will stay. Those who'd like to to stay. Any questions for Dr. Clark? Yes, J2. Um, thank you so much. You're welcome. Um, one question that kept coming to mind for me um, as you were speaking was about the healing relationships of family and how there's a lot of tension, I think, um, that can come up, whether in medicine, um, when effective care is complicated by caregiver burden, for instance, or in ministry, when I think of conversion, how as a spiritual transformation that also involves sometimes uh, tensions within family or um, letting go of family even, um, as in like, the New Testament, some scripture. So I, want, I wanted to um, ask you more about your experience with family members in your ministry. Well, for me personally, there wasn't really a cost other than when I told my mom and dad I wanted to go into the ministry because they were Christians. Um, they said that's fine because we didn't know any pastors who could make a living preaching. I mean, they all had to be bivocational. They said, so when you go to college, you'll major in something else you can make a living at. <laughs> Which I didn't, but... Uh, <laughs> and I did make a good living, you know, uh, more the exception than the rule. So there wasn't really a, a, an issue in my uh, immediate family, nuclear family, nor in my nuclear family. Um, but I've met people where it's very costly, uh, where... It, it did strain relationships. Um, but like you said, what Jesus said about that in the New Testament, you know, is our commitment to him's got to come first. I don't think he wants, I think he wants us to have healthy families and he doesn't like it when there's this type of division. But... Uh, I've seen a lot of that. Yeah. Or I've seen whole families come to Jesus through healing. Actually, I'm aware of whole villages that came to Jesus through healings. One of the things that Heidi does, and I've been with her, because uh, actually that gift about healing the deaf, every deaf person she prays for in, in Mozambique, she'll get out on a big truck, get out eight, nine hundred people in the village, get, do you know this guy? Can, is this person really deaf? This woman, is she really deaf? Yeah. And just watch what Jesus does. He'll pray, and then they, she hears, or he hears. Uh, that's one of the things that was studied by uh, the Browns when we were. When the, it was on my team. 
they were on my team. We got permission from Heidi to actually conduct that study, both in Mozambique and in Brazil. And we've seen lots of reconciliation coming to the Lord. Especially if there's a dead raising, almost the whole village comes to God. Yes? Thanks so much. You're welcome. I wonder what biblical stories of healing you continually referring to and kind of really resonate with you. What stories in the Gospels or Acts uh, of healing are really powerful for you? Well, all of them. But what I did was I took my Bible, one of my Bibles, I took a very light blue pen, uh, not pen, but you know, like color like that. And every prickly that was healing, not just the healing itself, but the whole passage contained it. I just did it in blue. And I did it in the whole, all four Gospels that way. And then sometimes what I do, several years ago, I just go back and I just read the blue. I just kept reading and reading and noticing. For example, there's seven signs in John's Gospel. I'm writing a new book right now on healing in John's Gospel. There's seven signs in John's Gospel. Six of those signs are preceded by an act of obedience that Jesus asked somebody to do something. And the healing follows that act of obedience. For example, John 9, the guy that's blind, born blind. Um, they asked him, how did, you know, they asked him, how did this happen? He said, the, the man they called Jesus, he told me to go to the, the pool called sin. And I did, and I washed. And then, I could see. It was like when he obeyed that act of obedience, that's when the healing came, as soon as he obeyed it. And six of the seven signs, and the one that's not explicit is implicit that when he tried to obey his problem, he was healed. But I can't prove that one. The other texts do. So I, for me, that says, John says, if everything Jesus had written had been, or had done, was written, all the books of the world couldn't contain it. Of course, it's hyperbole. But it means I have selected by the Holy Spirit these stories, and they're just a sampling then that makes it even all the more important to understand how often there are sometimes acts that God asks us to do. For example, I often see 100% of the people in Brazil when they're healed of the metal issue, they're not healed until they try to do what I say. And you need to try to do what you can't do. And it's when they try to do what they can't do, that's when the healing comes. Now, that's not going to make a raw law out of that. But there are often are these things where it's like, if God likes faith, he likes to create situations where we can express faith by that obedience. Thank you. Um, I was in Mozambique in 2015 and I was ministry and saw a dead woman raised and saw my eyes healed and um, my walk. The man who was blind in my mind, I actually prayed for him with two other women who were part of the ministry. And then I came and started here at Duke and the Divinity School. And I asked myself, why is it that we saw these kinds of um, healings in Mozambique and we received them and were able to pray and, and, saw, and saw miracles and yet we don't see those here? In America or in the yeah, I actually have a short answer for that one. Okay. Mozambique didn't have a strong church that had taught these parishioners for hundreds of years and created a cultural identity that healing is not for today. Mm-hmm. It's so much easier to see New Agers who've never been to church get healed than it is people that's been raised 
in, a cult, in, in the culture, religious culture of cessationism. We have taught both by fundamentalists who are cessationists and liberals who are cessationists. They're strange bedfellows. Whether you graduate from a very conservative fundamentalist school or the most liberal school in the United States, those two pastors will end up, their parishioners will be, have the same experience. There'll be no emphasis on healing as part of discipleship. No expectation of healing. Actually, there'll be the opposite expectation. And so we created our own culture by the way of approach of our theological education in our country. Causes unbelief. Do you think it's because, when I first came back, I thought it was because, well, in Mozambique, there's very few distractions. People are poor. Um, there's not a lot of materialism like there is here, and we have so many things to distract us and keep our eyes on other things. To, to some degree, for example, Heidi will not do a healing crusade and a medical clinic at the same time. Because if she did, the numbers of healing is less than if they only do the healing crusade and then at another time have the medical clinic come in. Because then, you, be, you know, it's kind of like you're not as desperate. And some of the things is that, you know, if you don't have any health care, it's either, if I, if I don't get healed, I'm going to die. And that really focuses you a whole lot more focused than you have other options. And the worldview is not only Brazil, Mozambique, but Brazil is a highly educated uh, populace. And yet it's so much easier to see healing in Brazil than it is in the United States. No, that is changing. In the last 10 years, what we're seeing in the United States is so much better than it was 10 years ago or 15 years ago. But the difference is it was a Catholic culture. We have a Protestant culture. Our, our country was founded pretty much on a Protestant Calvinist culture, especially the East Coast and, the Mid and, and New England. And whereas Brazil is founded as a, basically a Catholicism, the Catholic Church is much more open to supernatural and gifts and healing than Protestants were. Only at the birth of the faith care movement in the 1850s and in the Pentecostal movement did Protestants be challenged. That's why, that's why Pentecostals were persecuted so much. It wasn't the tongue issue, speaking in tongues, which I, by the way, I don't think you have to speak in tongues to be baptized or filled with the Holy Spirit. I spoke in tongues for years before I was ever filled with the Holy Spirit. Which, which messes with Pentecostals when I say it. <laughs> but, but, but you have this, was this culture. These Pentecostals are a threat to our whole system of theology because we believe the offices of the apostles and prophets are gone. And we believe the sign gifts of tongues, interpretation of tongues, healing, miracles, are gone, and we're going to reinterpret prophecy to be preaching, mm -hmm. which means it's basically gone. And the Pentecostals are basically teaching that God is restoring, which is what Spurgeon and others believed in the end time, and Edwards, a great end time revival, and the, the millennium would come in the kind of post-millennial view because of the advancing of the church through revivals and through missions, through ministry before. I do believe real revival always causes expansion of missions, and compassionate ministries. I also believe that God was in the, the social gospel that is normally associated with liberalism. I believe that Rauschenbusch and Washington Gladden 
those guys, the progressive movement that actually didn't start with the Democratic Party, but it started with Protestant preachers, the whole thing of progressive and unionism, all that, that that was God. At the same time, and, and I think that God is, I think that God is an independent. He's not a Republican or a Democrat. And, and I, this is really important because sometimes we get in our ghettos and, and we, we, we forget that we've got part of the truth, but, but sometimes our prejudice against another group makes us be blind that they have a part of the truth too. For example, I believe that concern for the poor and social issues is very much in the heart of God. And sometimes we will even agree, Democrats and Republicans, we need to do something. But the how to fix it is where we might differ. The fact that we would be concerned. So what happened in the modern fundamentalist controversy in the early 1920s was the gospel before then was both social and personal. People need to be saved and we need to address what's wrong in society. Both was part of the gospel. But after the modernist fundamentalist controversy in the 20s, 1920s, now you have fundamentalists that don't want to have anything to do with social programs. That's the social gospel. And you got some of the liberals over here that said everybody's going to go to heaven anyway, so we don't need to do personal evangelism. And then they became mortal enemies against each other. And so if you're liberal, you don't get involved so much in social, personal gospel. And if you're a fundamentalist, you don't get involved with this, this, this social gospel over here. That's why I love what's happening right now with my friends like Heidi and Roland. Man, they, drink, they dig wells. They, 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 they feed the poor. They, they take care of the widows. They take care of the orphans. And they cast out demons. And they heal the sick. And they lead people to Christ. It was bringing it all back. Personal and the social aspects of the gospel. It all is part of the gospel. And we need each other. Yes? That was so good. Thank you for sharing. Um, I think that my question is a follow-up to the last question, um, not asking from a critical perspective, but really from the perspective of faith, particularly in the West. Do you have some pastoral tips of how to meet families and people who have really contended for healing and have not experienced it? I have a, uh, I don't have it with me, but I have a, a two-message series. One's called, that tries to deal with um, the disappointment and the other one dealing with abuses in healing that I tried to subtly deal with and bring a correction to. One's called Thrill of Victory and it's Principles of Healing uh, where basically, basically deal with you know, it's not just a matter of faith. It's not always sin in their life. And some of the things I actually have... So every one of my points is illustrated by illustrations that contradict the point. That's, that's not good homiletics, but in my case it works. Because I was going to say instead of five points, I only got one point. And that one point is don't step off the rug of grace. Healing must be rooted in grace. And we don't want to line up with the accuser of the brethren and blaming people. It's your fault. You don't have enough faith. You've got too much sin in your life. It's trying to deal with those things. And 
But the, but the, the next message was the agony of defeat. The whole sermon is just, and it really starts with a girl from, North, from Raleigh, North Carolina, named Grace. And I was at High Point. And she and two little blonde, she's blonde, two brunettes. She's 12 years old, 13 years old. And I think and he says, she's crying because she's a boyfriend. You know, I remember church camp, you know, these girls, <laughs> these boyfriends broke up. And I said, what's wrong? And she said, I'm blind. I spent a whole three, I was only one of many speakers, so I spent most of the three days praying every time I got a chance for her. I believe God's going to heal her. She wasn't healed. I found out later, she sent me a Christmas card. She said, don't give up, keep praying for the sick. And, uh, but I found out later that she had a rare brain disease where her, it literally she just lost everything else. And it was a very horrible uh, death for the family. But the church went through it too. Later, I would go to that church, and one of the greatest miracles I saw in the United States happened in that very church where they had suffered this walking with this family. I have my own stories as a pastor for 30 years of situations like that where some of the best people in my church some of the most dedicated they weren't healed and at the same time they weren't healed we saw people who weren't even believers weren't even weren't committed to Jesus at all they came to me and they got healed of the same thing I don't have answers for that I don't try to answer it all I know is if I allow the disappointment in my heart to stop me from continuing to pray for the sick others who would have been healed later when we prayed for them wouldn't have been and every time you have a situation like that where there's this huge disappointment, it's, it's, a, it's a real pastoral challenge to how do we address this where we're, we honored what we tried. We, you know, we fought the good fight, but we lost this battle, but we're not going to lose the war. You know, and I saw the whole sermon, and actually a lot of people have told me out of everything I've preached in some schools, that's the message that touched their hearts the most. Because most people who have a healing, they don't talk about the failures. Now, anytime I'm going to pray for healing in that night, I'll never preach that sermon. Because it's not about building faith. It's about creating the reality for the people I'm praying for later. I'm going to pray for them. To be anointed to pray for the sick, I just want them to know the cost. I want them to know, see, people sometimes say that healing's not in the cross of Isaiah 53. That's, you know, and I say, well, we may disagree on that, but I know it's in the cross of Luke 9, 23. If anyone would be my disciples and deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. When Jesus said that, there had been no resurrection yet. And the only way they could have understood that was if we're going to be a follower of Jesus, I must be willing to embrace suffering. Because the only thing the cross means at that time is going to be suffering. And for us in the West, we have almost no suffering committed to our faith. But the reason why most people is, it, don't pray for the sick, it's not theological. Sometimes it is, but it's usually, especially for those who have a theology for it. Why don't more people pray for the sick? It's because it hurts. It's painful. You get involved in people's lives. You get to know them. And, when, and if they're not healed, it's, 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 you're, you actually have entered into their suffering. You, you're a part of it. And it just hurts so bad you want to quit. That's why we need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Because it's only the love of God that keeps us from quitting His love for people. I'm going to take the privilege of a final question. We've gone over a few minutes. Um, and then uh, if you want to come up and ask 
Dr. Clark question, uh, you can do that. But my, back, back there you were pastoring 400 people. The Lord said, you want, what about 1,000, what about 5,000? And you could see how much work it was and you were tired. You've, you've done a lot more work since. Have you experienced that the Lord sort of carried you along in His energy? Or how is that? Yeah, I have been told that I have a supernatural energy by young guys half my age that said I, after a year I can't do it anymore. I can't keep up. Uh, I hope that continues. You know, I'm beginning to... The last year was the first time I've called my wife and said, man, I'm tired because mm -hmm. I was like 67. But, you know, the guys follow me around and said, you're tired, man, I've been exhausted. <laughs> so there was a grace. There was a supernatural grace to do what I've done, and my family's aware of it, I'm aware of it. Um, I've had 43 interns, almost all of them are a third of my age to half. The oldest one have been me, half of my age. I would like to say I have some books over there, a training manual, I've got one book on Eyewitness to Miracles that in the foot, it, it deals with some of the stuff we've talked about today, particularly some of the, how did we get in this shape, and there's, um, in it, and I think that's the main one, um, there's, UR, there's footnotes that will take you to URLs. And the URLs, if you put in your computer, will take you to the very video of the story you're reading about from the person it happened to. So you can actually see the subtitles, watching the gospel come to life. And uh, the one on the power to heal is, is, I think out of all the books I've written, is one of the most helpful. And the one on healing breakthrough is probably one of the most helpful for our culture because it deals in the first half of the book with, I think, bad teachings and practices that will hurt an atmosphere of faith for healing in a church or a family. And the second half of the book is um, teachings and practices that helps build faith in a body of people or a family. And so there's some back there if you're interested. Also, my, I think there's my dissertations back there, I think, uh, on a USB. And those are, I don't know what they usually are. Um, I, I think it's somewhere 55 to 75. And uh, for this group, you know, I think it might cost about $10 for it. So if you'd like that to be able to read, it's, it's, it's got all the biblical research, the scientific research. It was a crossover between medicine and theology my thesis was and um, so it's available um, done join me and thank you Dr. Clark